The opinions expressed in the following episode do not necessarily reflect those of the Minds of Madness podcast. Listener discretion is advised. December of 2003 was a special time for Kent and Trisha Whitaker. Their sons had returned home from university for the holidays, and they were happy to have the whole family back together again. Little did the Whitakers know, it would be the last fond memory the family of four would share. Join me now as we take a look into the horrific events that tore apart the Whitaker family. A police investigation that would uncover several unsettling truths, while a father's unwavering conviction would save a murderer's life. While attending college, Kent Whitaker and Trisha Bartlett met on a blind date and hit it off right away. It was basically love at first sight. Kent went over to Trisha's house to pick her up for the first date and walked her down the stairs and thought to himself, I've never been on a blind date like this before. By their mid-twenties, the couple had married and started creating a life together. Kent was a hard-working office manager and accountant, while Trisha taught at a local elementary school. On New Year's Eve 1979, the couple welcomed their first child into the world, Thomas Bartlett Whitaker, affectionately known as Bart. Four years later, their family was complete after their second son, Kevin, was born. The Whitakers had decided to plant their roots in an idyllic subdivision located in Sugarland, Texas. A wealthy suburb just outside of Houston considered a great place to raise a family. Bart and Kevin grew up with everything a child could ask for. A beautiful home, nice clothes, and family vacations to sunny destinations. More importantly, the Whitaker boys had loving parents with steadfast faith. As devout Christians, Kent and Trisha believed it was important to raise happy and healthy children based on a strong foundation of their Christian values. As her sons grew older, Trisha transitioned from a full-time school teacher to a stay-at-home mom and occasional volunteer, allowing her more time to spend with her kids and helping them with their studies. Kent, too, loved spending quality time with his boys, and with his youngest son, Kevin, shared a love of sports and the outdoors. With his oldest son, Bart, Ken shared a common passion for cycling. Bart had known he loved riding the moment he planted his feet for the first time on pedals. He even helped teach his little brother how to ride. Bart once estimated he had ridden over 15,000 miles with his dad. Growing up, Bart and his younger brother, Kevin, were practically inseparable. It was clear to anyone who knew them that Kevin looked up to his older brother and absolutely adored him. Their parents, Kent and Trisha, were also very close. Kent's brother, Beau, said the couple's love for each other was nothing like he'd ever seen. Trisha was his brother's soulmate. Even after so many years of marriage, the couple were still excited to wake up beside each other 
every morning. Kent even brushed his teeth before heading home from work to ensure his breath was nice and fresh for when he got back and kissed Trisha. In the winter of 2003, Bart and Kevin headed back to their family home for the holidays. 19-year-old Kevin, who just finished his first year at Texas A&M, was feeling disappointed his grades hadn't been as good as he'd hoped. Although he struggled with attention deficit disorder, it hadn't hindered his determination. He was anxious to return back to school so he could refocus and pull his grades up. 23-year-old Bart, on the other hand, made a huge announcement to the family on the afternoon of December 10th. He told them he'd just finished his exams at Sam Houston State University and surprised his parents by telling them he'd be graduating with honors the following day. Bart's parents were beside themselves. In his earlier years, Bart ran into some problems and was kicked out of school. It made his accomplishment even more significant. Hoping for this moment one day, Kent and Trisha had been saving up for an extraordinary graduation gift. Later that evening, around 6 p.m., the family of four gathered around the fireplace for some photos, and the proud parents presented Bart with his gift, a Rolex watch worth several thousand dollars. Bart had told his family for years he'd wanted a Rolex watch, and he was ecstatic to have finally gotten one. A short time later, the Whitakers all piled into Trisha's trailblazer and headed out to dinner to celebrate. Their destination? A popular seafood restaurant only a few minutes away. Between forkfuls of crawfish, gumbo, and fried catfish, Kent and Trisha congratulated their son on his achievements and chatted about his future. Bart was now one step closer to fulfilling his dreams of working in law enforcement as either a homicide detective or a criminal profiler. After finishing their seafood dinner, Bart was surprised when a server brought over a massive plate of strawberries topped with whipped cream. On the edge of the plate, written with chocolate syrup read, Congratulations! After taking a few more pictures, the Whitakers headed home with a plan to continue on with the festivities. It was shortly after 8 p.m. when they pulled into the driveway, and Kevin decided to pull a familiar stunt. Hopping out of his mom's truck, Kevin shot past everyone, wanting to be the first person to get to the front door. As Trisha followed, Kent trailed behind, looking back to notice Bart wasn't heading up to the house like everyone else. Instead, he was walking towards his vehicle that had been parked out on the street. Bart called out he'd forgotten his phone in his truck, and he'd be up to the house shortly. After arriving back to his parents' house, Bart planned on calling his girlfriend Lynn so she could join them. The graduation dinner had been thrown together so last minute, by the time Bart had invited her, she'd already made plans she couldn't break. Bart and Lynn had become close friends after meeting in their high school journalism class. A few years later, their friendship grew into something more, and they'd been dating ever since. After racing up to the house, Kevin unlocked the front door and headed inside. Trisha was close behind. Within seconds, the sound of a gunshot tore through the night, along with the sound of Trisha crying out. And then, another shot was fired. Kent hadn't realized the loud bangs were gunshots, 
so he stepped inside the house to see what was happening. Suddenly, the light from the front porch came on, shining into the house, illuminating an intruder standing at the foot of the stairs, only about eight feet away. Kent managed to make out that the person was wearing a ski mask and dressed all in black. For a split second, Kent wondered if one of his son's friends was playing a joke on them, trying to scare them with a paint gun. But before the thought could escape his mind, a bullet flew towards him, hitting him in the right shoulder and missing his heart by only six inches. The force of the shot sent Kent spinning around and flat on his back. Hearing shots being fired and his family's cries for help, Bart ran from his truck, past his father who was laying on the front porch, and into the family home. After locking eyes with the masked intruder, Bart charged towards him, tackling him to the floor. While trying to disarm the shooter, Bart was shot in the arm. Laying on the living room floor, Bart watched helplessly as the intruder dropped his weapon and escaped out the back door. At 8.18 p.m., Cliff, the Whitaker's neighbor, raced over after hearing the shots and screams. When he arrived at their home, he spotted Kent sprawled on the front porch, laying in a pool of blood. At first, he wasn't sure if he was alive or dead, but then Kent moaned he was bleeding and needed help. After Cliff's son also ran over to see what was happening, Cliff told him to call 911. Cliff acted fast by taking off his shirt and applying pressure to Kent's wound, hoping to stop the bleeding. When he looked up, he caught sight of Trisha, who was lying inside the house. He could hear her, and she was crying. Despite her life-threatening injuries, Trisha managed to warn Cliff someone had shot them and told him, you need to go, he could still be here. That's when he saw young Kevin and his heart sank. It was evident he'd been shot in the chest at point-blank range, and sadly, he knew he couldn't help. Cliff decided it was time to heed Trisha's warning, and he ran back to his house to grab his shotgun. But when he went to get his gun, his wife Darlene cautioned against it, fearing police might mistake him for the shooter. So Cliff went back to the Whitaker's house unarmed, and painstakingly waited for help to arrive. Sugar Lane police arrived just 10 minutes after 911 was called. Realizing the extent of the Whitaker's injuries, a life flight helicopter and paramedics were called in. Police then formed a three-person team and combed throughout the house in search of the shooter. They needed to make sure the gunman wasn't inside before allowing EMTs into the home. During their search, they found Bart lying on the living room floor, between a couch and a small table. Although he was clearly in pain, Bart managed to let officers know the shooter had escaped at the back door and was able to give a description. According to Bart, the shooter was approximately 5'11", with a medium build, wearing a ski mask and dressed all in black. Within minutes, the Whitaker house was cleared and paramedics were allowed to enter. Tragically, they discovered Kevin had already died from his gunshot wound, but Trisha, who'd been shot in the chest, still had a faint pulse 
and was immediately airlifted off the property. By that point, the cul-de-sac was swarming with activity. Emergency vehicles had piled in, and curious neighbors emptied their homes, wanting to see what all the commotion was about. All eyes turned skyward as the medical chopper carried Trisha off. Sadly, she never made it to the hospital alive. While being treated at the hospital, Kent was told the devastating news that his wife and youngest son were gone. His heart shattered. Believing that the Christian path is one paved with forgiveness, Kent did something he would later refer to as a conscious act of will. In that moment, he decided, no matter who the shooter was, he needed to forgive them. A couple hours after the Whitaker shooting, there had been another incident only a few miles away. A man had forced his way into a home, tied up the residents, roughed them up, and stole some of their belongings. Although police managed to chase him down to a nearby apartment complex, the man shot and killed himself before he could be taken into custody. It seemed like an extreme reaction to an appending arrest, causing authorities to wonder if the man had been involved with the Whitaker shooting. Police later learned the man's name was Lathan Jackson, and he had a long criminal record. He'd been released from prison a few months earlier for drug possession, and had previously been incarcerated for violent felony crimes. Had Jackson taken his life, not because he shot the Whitakers, but because he didn't want to face any more jail time. It was a possibility, detectives on the case considered. However, upon further investigation, Jackson was eliminated as a suspect when they couldn't find any evidence at the Whitaker home that could point to him. Refocusing on the Whitaker family residence, Detective Marshall Slot carefully walked through the crime scene. It didn't take him long to realize something was off. The closer he looked, the crime scene was beginning to look more and more like a poorly staged robbery. In the master bedroom, drawers had been carefully pulled open to the exact same distance and didn't look ransacked at all. Not to mention, no valuables were missing. Big ticket items like DVD players, laptops, video game consoles, and jewelry had been sitting in plain sight and were all still there. Strangely, the only thing that was missing was Bart's cell phone. Windows and doors to the home also showed no signs of a break-in. The house was secure. What they did find was the Whitaker's gun safe located at the back of the house was broken into. In fact, it had been pried open with what looked like a painted metal crowbar. After taking inventory of what was inside, detectives soon realized Kevin's 9mm Glock and ammunition was missing. It was later matched to the gun investigators found on the kitchen floor, and all indications pointed to it being the murder weapon. Detective Slot thought only someone familiar with the family home would have known where to find the safe not a random robbery. He also wondered if the shooter either knew the family or had been staking out the house because it was such a short time frame between when the Whitakers left for dinner and arrived back home. What also seemed peculiar 
was that the killer had only fired four bullets, but somehow managed to hit all four of the Whitakers and high up on their bodies. Even most officers the detective knew couldn't achieve such a high hit ratio without being given some sort of advantage. The detective then searched the backyard, where it was believed the intruder had jumped the fence and escaped through the neighbor's yard. When he saw the forensic team inspecting the surrounding area, he decided to work his way to the front of the house. There he bumped into Deputy Keith Pickett, a canine handler. He specialized in working with scent-tracking dogs and had three bloodhounds with him, Quincy, Columbo, and Jag. The dog handler had the hounds working from the scent from the master bedroom drawers, the black glove that was found on the street, and the gun in the kitchen. Unfortunately, the dogs didn't have any luck finding the gunmen, but police knew if they came up with a suspect, the dog's amazing sense of smell could be used to link him to the crime scene. The night after the murders, Detective Slot and his partner, B.W. Baugh, dropped by the hospital to question Bart and Kent. When they arrived, the detectives found the men surrounded by visitors, and practically every surface in their shared room was covered in flowers, fruit baskets, and sympathy cards. The investigators explained to them it was looking like the robbery had been staged. Someone had gone to the house that night, intent on killing the Whitaker family. The bewildered father and son were at a loss for words. They said they had no idea who would have wanted to hurt their family. Although detectives left the hospital without any new leads, the following day, they received a tip that dramatically changed the course of their investigation. The call was from the bursar's office at Sam Houston State University, explaining Bart had dropped out of school when he was a freshman. In fact, he hadn't attended school in over three years. Not only had Bart blatantly lied to his family about attending university, but he also lied that he was about to graduate with honors. After taking a moment to process the shocking new information, Detective Slot and his partner returned to the hospital to question Bart and break the troubling news to Kent. After being confronted with his lies, Bart explained he left school when a bunch of his co-workers quit the Bentwater Yacht and Country Club one summer, an upscale restaurant in Montgomery where Bart had been working for some extra money. Bart said he'd been left to pick up the slack. Through tears, he said he lied because he couldn't stand the thought of disappointing everyone and that he fully intended on returning back to school. He hoped no one would ever find out. Kent was stunned. Bart had deceived the family for more than three years, taking money for tuition and doing who knows what with it. Kent panicked. Bart's ridiculous behavior was leading police to suspecting his son was somehow involved with the shootings, that the whole horrific event was to cover up his failures at school and a means to get his hands on insurance money. While focusing on Bart, Kent worried the real killer might slip away. Despite Kent's feeling of betrayal, Following their release from the hospital, he demonstrated his forgiving nature once again by allowing Bart to move back into the family home. After Trisha and Kevin's funerals, detectives continued to dig further into Bart's life, uncovering all they could about him. 
It didn't take long for them to discover. Bart had more than typical teenage problems during high school. Not only did he and his buddies vandalize several schools, but they also stole electronics. So much, they had to rent a storage unit to hide their loot until they could figure out what to do with it. After eventually getting caught, Bart was arrested and expelled from Clements High School. Needless to say, Bart's parents were devastated. Trisha took the news especially hard and was mortified that one of her schools her son had targeted was a school she volunteered at. She was so embarrassed by his behavior, Trisha stopped shopping at her usual grocery store to avoid bumping into anyone she knew. She even talked her husband into switching churches. After his arrest, Bart's parents turned to psychologist Dr. Brendan O'Rourke for help. They wanted to get their son the counseling he needed so he could return to school. The doctor met with Bart 10 times and performed several assessments. The psychologist found Bart to be argumentative, self-centered, and possessing an inflated sense of self-importance, combined with an intense mistrust of others. The test surprisingly revealed that Bart had narcissistic personality disorder characterized by a pervasive pattern of grandiosity, need for admiration, and a lack of empathy. As a result, he was drawn to weak people who he felt he could control and saw others merely as tools for accomplishing his goals. But Dr. O'Rourke had a hard time believing the testing was accurate. Narcissism was a common trait among teenagers, but actually having the disorder was extremely rare. Bart came from a close-knit family with strong values and had no prior criminal history. The doctor thought that something must have skewed the test results. Instead, she diagnosed Bart with adjustment disorder, a milder condition. She also recommended he be allowed back into high school. In the end, it really didn't matter what the doctor thought. Clements High School rejected Bart's appeal and he was transferred to a private school to finish up his senior year. Bart's struggles during high school were one of the many reasons his parents were so thrilled when they thought he was graduating from university. They took it as a sign he'd matured and moved past his issues. The more Detective Slot learned about Bart, the surer he became the young man was somehow involved with the murder of his family. While police searched for evidence to link Bart to the shooting, Bart spent every moment he could with his dad. They huddled together, studying the Bible for hours. Bart focused on Christ, forgiveness, and redemption. Bart said, I knew that forgiveness, when you truly believe in Christ, is instantaneous. He was a changed man. When Bart proposed to Lynn and set a wedding date, Kent thanked God. His son was on the right path, and he couldn't wait to be a grandfather. At the same time, investigators couldn't take their minds off a photo they'd found of Bart and his brother on the night of the murder. The photo captured Bart and Kevin standing side by side in front of the fireplace right before the family headed out for dinner. Although Bart and Kevin happily smiled at the camera, a closer look revealed Bart subversively giving the finger to whoever was taking the picture. 
Detectives believed Bart had so much pent-up hostility for his family than anyone actually realized. But was it enough to want them dead? Their suspicions were confirmed when a young man named Adam Hip stopped into the Sugarland Police Department to tell detectives an astonishing tale. Bart had managed to befriend socially awkward classmates in university repeatedly and had even manipulated and threatened them into plots to kill his family. According to Adam, Bart enjoyed talking about how much he hated his family. In Bart's mind, his parents had widely unrealistic expectations he could never measure up to. And his brother Kevin was a useless bore who wasted money and didn't deserve to live. Adam had heard rumors the first attempt on the Whitakers had happened in December of 2000, but it was aborted after one of the young men set off the house alarm when he opened the window. The second time was the attempt Adam said he'd been involved with, occurring months later on April 5th, 2001. Bart and a few of his buddies from university, including Adam, had devised a detailed plan to kill Bart's family for the insurance money, and Adam was going to be the trigger man. Adam sketched out the murder plot for detectives, which so happened to mirror the actual attack on the Whitakers in 2003 entirely, even down to Bart getting shot in the arm. Back in 2001, a friend of one of the conspirators called police to warn them about Bart's plan. When police got in touch with Kent and Trisha, they said the story was ridiculous. Bart would never harm them. It was clearly a prank. But Adam knew better. He told Detective Slot it wasn't a prank and even offered to get Bart to admit it over the phone while police listened in. As a result, detectives were able to record multiple phone calls between Adam and Bart. In one call, Bart offered Adam $20,000 in exchange for his silence. In another call, Bart asked Adam to lie to police about their earlier plan. Ironically, during one of the calls, Bart asked Adam to wear a wire so he could hear what police were saying about him. Once detectives verified Adam's story, they had no other choice but to warn Kent about Bart's involvement. Detective Slot strongly urged Kent to move out of the house. He told him, We feel wholeheartedly that Bart is responsible for this, and you're living with a man who intended to murder you. However, Kent couldn't think the worst of his only remaining family and refused to leave. Knowing Kent was in danger worried detectives, but Adam's story had given them an idea. Bart seemed to have a pattern about roping friends into his murder plots, and the detectives wondered if the same could have happened in the Whitaker shooting. That's when they decided to check out two of Bart's closest friends, Chris Brashear and Stephen Champagne. Chris and Stephen had worked with Bart at the country club just months before the murders. The two young men were asked to provide what police call scent samples. Detective Slot then brought in the bloodhounds that had worked the crime scene to compare scent samples from the two men and evidence from the crime scene. During the scent lineup, the dogs indicated Stephen's scent wasn't found in the home. 
Chris's scent, on the other hand, was found on several items, including the glove found by the yard, the master bedroom drawers, and the murder weapon. Although the results weren't admissible in court, and Chris denied any involvement in the murders, Detective Slot finally knew who the shooter was and had somewhere to focus his attention. Once Bart learned the net was beginning to fall around his friends, he knew it was only a matter of time until he was arrested. So one evening in July of 2004, Bart told his dad he was going out for the night. Instead, he stole $10,000 of his father's money and headed to Mexico. Detectives soon learned that a couple of weeks earlier, Bart had asked a busboy at the restaurant he worked at for help. He told Rogelio Rudy Rios he was being wrongfully accused for killing his family and needed to get out of the country. Rios agreed to help and charged Bart $3,000 for fake ID in the name of Rudy Rios and drove him to Soralvo, Mexico, a town about 50 miles south of the border. When they got there, he dropped him off at his father's house. With his new identity, Bart managed to settle into the community and began dating a woman he'd met at church, and her name was Cindy Lou Salinas. When Cindy brought her new boyfriend home to meet her parents, he charmed them so much, her dad Omero offered him a job working at their family furniture store. Bart told Cindy Lou's family, He'd been a soldier and was shot in battle, but had gone AWOL because he was sick of killing people. He also said he was an only child and hadn't gotten along with his mom because she was a prostitute. According to Bart, his family just didn't give him the love he needed and all they could offer was money. Although he presented a touching story, Cindy Lou experienced another side to Bart and it was dark. One night, after Cindy Lou had a big fight with her mom, she smashed her guitar and hoped Bart would comfort her. Instead, she was given advice that sent shivers down her spine. Bart told Cindy Lou not to be angry with her parents. If you want, we could kill them, he said, and you won't be angry with them anymore. Cindy Lou kept her concerns to herself and continued seeing Bart, but wondered, deep down, who exactly she was dealing with. While Bart was living under the assumed identity in Mexico, the investigation back in Sugarland had come to a halt. But in August 2005, there was a massive break in the case. Stephen Champagne, who Detective Slot suspected of being involved in the Whitaker shooting, finally came forward and said he wanted to come clean. As it turned out, Stephen had a lot to tell about what had happened that terrible December evening. He told the detective he and Chris had been promised part of the insurance money for helping Bart kill his family, but neither of them had seen a dime of it because Bart said Kent hadn't died too. He outlined for the investigators how Bart had planned the crime manipulated both of them into going along with it, and then lured his family out to a fake graduation dinner. While the Whitakers celebrated, Stephen watched from a vehicle in the parking lot. Meanwhile, 
Bart's roommate, Chris Brashear, the young man who the scent dogs had placed at the scene of the crime, hid in Bart's SUV outside the Whitaker home. Stephen told police, Chris entered the house with a key given to him and disabled the alarm with a code provided by Bart. Once inside, Chris broke into the safe and got Kevin's gun out. He then pulled open a bunch of drawers so police would think it was a robbery. When the family headed home, Stephen called Chris from a burner phone to let him know to get ready. Stephen said Chris freaked out because he'd lost one of his gloves and couldn't find it, but decided to go through with it anyways. Stephen followed the Whitakers home, parked on a nearby street, and waited for Chris. When Chris first hopped into the car, there was dead silence between them. But then slowly, Chris recounted how he dropped the gun after he shot Bart in the arm and then accidentally picked up Bart's cell phone instead of the gun before taking off and running out the back door. When Chris told Stephen about the other shootings, he couldn't forget what he'd said about Kevin. Chris said that just before he shot Kevin, he smiled at him as though he recognized his brother's friend and wondered if he'd walked in on some kind of a prank. Stephen told police he wanted to make a deal for his testimony against Chris and Bart. Then Stephen dropped another bombshell when he told detectives he could lead them to actual evidence. After the shootings, Stephen and Chris had placed a bunch of items used during the crime into a duffel bag and then tossed it into Lake Conroe, which was about an hour's drive north from Sugarland. A dive team was able to retrieve a bag which contained a cell phone, license plates, a handheld vacuum used to clean out the getaway car, clothing, gloves, a chisel, burner phones, unused 9mm ammunition, and a half-full water bottle. Forensic tests matched the paint on the chisel to the paint found on the safe in the Whitaker home. Investigators also obtained a DNA profile from the water bottle that matched Chris. And remarkably, a high-tech reconstruction of the badly damaged cell phone recovered from the lake, almost two years later, was able to identify Bart Whitaker as the owner. At that moment, Detective Slot knew they had what they needed to charge Bart. Now they just had to find him. On September 12, 2005, authorities announced Chris's arrest for the Whitaker murders, but they said they were still looking at other individuals known to the family. Rogelio Rios happened to see the news clip about Chris and offered information. He told police exactly where they could find Bart Whitaker. Eventually, Rogelio was awarded $10,000 in Crime Stoppers money. After an investigation that spanned almost two years, Bart was finally arrested on September 15, 2005. Cindy Lou and her family were devastated when Bart was arrested and hauled back to the States. Her father said they'd all fallen in love with him, but in reality, had been tricked by a serpent the entire time. After his arrest, Bart said he loved his Mexican family 
and hoped they didn't hate him. When Bart saw his father for the first time, they were separated by bulletproof glass. Bart met his dad's eyes and said, I'm so sorry. I'm sorry for everything. I'm going to do everything in my power to make this as easy and painless as possible for everyone. At that moment, Kent realized his son was guilty. But Kent had already forgiven whoever killed the love of his life and his precious son. He knew he needed to stand by Bart and do whatever he could to help him. On Tuesday, October 4th, 2015, a grand jury returned indictments for capital murder on Thomas Bart Whitaker, Chris Brashear, and Stephen Champagne. Stephen got his plea deal for testifying against Chris and Bart and ended up with a 15-year prison term. Kent hired his son a lawyer, and his legal team tried several times to make a deal with the state. Bart was willing to plead guilty in exchange for two life sentences, but all of his attempts failed. On January 30, 2006, Fort Bend County DA John Healy announced they were seeking the death penalty against Bart. In March of 2007, three years after Trisha and Kevin's murders, Bart's trial finally got underway. Prosecutors had a slam-dunk case and believed the trial itself was a mere formality. The state seamlessly presented forensic evidence, crime scene analysis, and conspirator testimony. Witnesses shared multiple accounts of Bart's scheming to kill his family over the years, which were especially damning. Prosecutors argued that although it wasn't Bart who pulled the trigger, he played a leading role in the conspiracy so he could inherit $1.5 million. There was so much evidence proving Bart's guilt that his defense attorney took a unique strategy. Randy McDonald all but conceded Bart's guilt. He didn't even call any witnesses. He just used the trial as an extra opportunity to try to convince jurors that Bart's life should be spared. On March 5th, the jury only took two and a half hours to find Bart guilty of both murders. The real battle occurred during the punishment phase. The state of Texas wanted Bart to pay the ultimate price for his crimes, and that meant death, whereas the defense fought hard to spare his life. Many members of Bart's extended family took the stand and asked for his life to be saved. Kent even took the stand and pleaded for his son's life. Bart testified and wept about what he'd done to his family. He said, I feel horrible about myself and what I've done. When his lawyer asked him if he could explain why he killed his family, Bart admitted he tried to figure that out but failed. All he could come up with was he always felt his family's love was conditional on a standard he could never reach. After deliberating for 10 hours, the jury came to their decision and sentenced Bart to death by lethal injection. Over the years, Bart tried to have his ruling overturned and filed several appeals from death row, but each time was denied. One week before his son was to be put to death, 
Kent made one final desperate plea for mercy to the Texas Board of Pardons and Paroles. He said he'd only be further victimized if his son was executed. Kent told reporters, We're not asking people to forgive Bart or to let him go. We just want them to let him live. Bart is the last surviving member of my natural family, and no one in my family wants to see him executed. Remarkably, just two days before the sentence was about to be carried out, the board recommended to Governor Greg Abbott that Bart be granted clemency. However, on February 2nd, 2018, Bart was scheduled to be executed at 6 p.m. He'd had his final meal and said his goodbyes to his dad and stepmother, their hands touching through both sides of the glass. What happened next was considered an answer to a forgiving father's prayer. A call came in just 45 minutes before Bart's execution. The governor had commuted his death sentence to life imprisonment without parole. On the morning of December 16, 2003, before Bart had been suspected or arrested for murdering his family, he and his father sat together in the front pew at the Sugar Creek Baptist Church to mourn the loss of their family. More than a thousand people were in attendance to honor the lives of Trisha and Kevin. Family members, friends, and strangers alike were in tears over the loss of two beautiful souls. In his eulogy, a family friend and church pastor, Matt Barnhill, compared the murders to an earthquake. He said, in some communities in California, they have earthquakes. This is Sugarland's earthquake. Our lives are shaken, and our sense of safety and well-being is shattered. Brittany Barnhill, the pastor's daughter and Kevin's close friend, told the congregation how much Kevin loved his older brother. She looked directly at Bart and said, I cannot tell you how much Kevin looked up to you. He wanted so badly to be like you. Bart looked away as he choked back tears. The service closed with another family friend asking for donations to fund a reward to help find Trisha and Kevin's murderer. Since being in prison, psychiatric tests have revealed that Bart suffers from Asperger's, ADD, and psychiatric disorders with paranoid, narcissistic, and antisocial features. We asked Dr. Christina Forzani, a clinical psychologist based out of San Diego, California, to explain how Bart's new diagnosis may have affected him earlier on in life. It's always difficult to draw accurate conclusions in cases where mental health is a factor because I haven't worked with Bart or reviewed his mental health history, so it's important to keep that in mind. But the information that the general public has access to shows that psychiatric tests while Bart Whitaker was in prison have revealed that he may suffer from Asperger's, ADHD, and psychotic disorders with paranoid, narcissistic, and antisocial features. Now, I don't know the background of any of those, but I can give information about some of those diagnoses. At the time of the murders, Bart Whitaker, he was also heavily involved with drugs and alcohol. 
So let me just review a few considerations. Were a patient to have some of these patterns? Any social personality disorder, for example, is a pattern of disregard for social and legal norms and a lack of remorse for others, lack of remorse for legal issues, and sometimes people with this disorder may commit major crimes and they tend to struggle with impulsivity and aggression. Another personality disorder that was associated with Bart Whitaker was narcissistic personality disorder, which would indicate that he lacked a core sense of who he was, who he is. Some individuals with narcissism don't really think that they'll be caught in a crime too because they might have a sense that they're superior to others or they would somehow be immune. The combination of these two disorders could lead to acting out against others and at the same time not having the moral values and self-reflection to take responsibility. And that was something that seems to be kind of consistent throughout Bart Whitaker's time in prison has been people observe he didn't really have a sense of remorse. He said that he didn't want the death penalty, but he didn't really care. It was more because of his father. So that's interesting. The combination of different personality disorders, that could lead to Bart having acted out against others and not having the moral values or the self-reflection to take responsibility for it. Both Bart and Kent claim that Bart is a changed man who takes ownership of his crimes, feels remorse for his actions, and tries to make his new reality a better place. After that fateful December evening, Kent retired and focused his energy on helping his son and on his own personal healing. There were many dark days when Kent struggled to make his way through the world without Trisha or Kevin by his side. But since then, he's met an amazing woman named Tanya, who has given him joy and the beauty of a new beginning. Now Kent volunteers for prison ministries and travels across the U.S., speaking at churches and conferences about the power of forgiveness. Writing and research for this episode was by Christine Penhale. You should check out her website, The True Crime Files, for in-depth articles on missing persons and unsolved murders. We'll provide a link to her website in the show notes. We just wanted to say a special thank you to Dr. Christina Forzani for her help on this episode. Christina is a clinical psychologist based out of California who works with patients in need of support for depression, anxiety, socioeconomic barriers, and trauma. She's provided her insights on a few of our episodes now, and we're really grateful for the professional insight she's been able to provide to the show. I'd like to thank the following new Patreon supporters. Stephanie B., Sarah, Stephanie W., Megan C., Melanie L., Denise N., and Amy M. And now I'd like to introduce you to a show from a couple of friends of ours. They're huge supporters of our show, and we think the world of them. The podcast is called Bloody Murder, and it's hosted by Tara and Barney. If you like your true crime with a bit of humor, you gotta check him out. And here's Tara and Barney from Bloody Murder. Thank you so much, Tyler. Yeah, thanks, Tyler. He's a bloody legend, isn't he, Barney? Oh, he certainly is. Hi, I'm Tara Saraban. And I'm Barney Black. Is listening to true crime podcasts all the time getting you down, but you just can't stop? 
Try listening to Bloody Murder. We're an Australian comedy true crime podcast focusing on some of the lesser-known murder cases from Australia and around the globe. We use black comedy as a means to tell horrifying true crime stories. But our humour is respectful and never at the expense of victims or their loved ones. Our episodes cover everything from Australian gangland figures like Chopper Reed to black widows and women who kill disputes between neighbours that turn to murder identity theft killings bushrangers and serial killers you won't have heard covered elsewhere. We get straight into the case with no banter or chit-chat beforehand. That's because the podcast is about true crime, not our most recent manicure. But this frosted French salmon is such a great colour on me. Hmm, is it? Our fresh, well-researched episodes are released every Monday. Bloody Murder has been nominated for four Australian Podcast Awards. We've been going for over three years now. So we have loads of episodes for you to binge. You can listen to Bloody Murder on Spotify and any of your favourite podcatchers. The Minds of Madness can be found on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, TuneIn, Google Play, and all other podcast platforms. Ad-free episodes of this show are available on Stitcher Premium. If you would like to support this show and get some extra perks, including extra content, early release, and ad-free episodes, go to patreon.com slash madnesspod. You can find our website by going to mindsofmadnesspodcast.com. To find us on Facebook and Instagram, search The Minds of Madness. And on Twitter, using the handle at MadnessPod. And finally, the closing track, Feel the Madness, is provided by The Funkors. You can find them at the record label's website by going to goldenerrorecords.com.au slash G-E. I hope they can't get in cause I'm not prepared to run I can feel the madness Someone's standing at my door I hope they can't get in cause I'm not prepared to run